This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Driving stinks. I can't see. Settle down, LA was a drag. LA was the last rock. Now it's her in my hair and my heart. And I swear when I feel composed, be amused. Make mistakes we all do. And it makes me. episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 67.2. We're still in the decimals, which means David Grubbs is not joining us yet. He's still in the midst of a terrible, terrible J-term. I suppose it's not necessarily terrible. It's just terrible to be in one at all. Well, I, I think it's just running him down, and I, I, I've heard the same about J-term, and it doesn't hurt, or it doesn't help, there we go, that he's also uh, a faculty sponsor for a student public uh, publication, which... Uh, as I know from a couple years' experience, is a lot more work on the faculty than the title student publication would indicate. Yeah, Grubsy works for the yearbook, which is funny because having never gone to public high school or even private high school, Grubsy has never had a yearbook. Right. <laughs> he, he may be the, the he, he's, he's uniquely unqualified for that position. <laughs> the other voice you hear is Nathan Gilmore, who is a assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I guess I didn't introduce myself. I'm Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English, Crown College, St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. There you go. Well, uh, do we have anything new on the blog this week, Nathan? Uh, actually, I, I missed the Bible post this week, which I'm a bit ashamed of. Uh, but I I'm not. I'm, I can't say anything. But I'm not preaching this Sunday, so I mean that's why it wasn't as urgent. Uh, we're having a a, a guest, uh, actually, family of one of our fan. Yeah, they're kin to one of our families. There we go. I'll talk to Georgia for a second. Uh, who are coming in and you know being guest speakers at the service? So uh, I'll admit uh, the weekly Bible post kind of dropped down on the priority list. You didn't sound very Georgian because you didn't pronounce Ken with two syllables. Well, that is true. That is true. <laughs> Ken. All right. Um, well, our topic today is Philip Carey's book, Good News for Anxious Christians, which is a terrible, terrible title for a really great book. <laughs> and, and worse than the title, I'm sure you agree, is the cover. Yeah, the, co- the cover is just toxic. I mean, uh, it's... <laughs> it's bad clip art from, like, 1993. It's like, it, it really does look like somebody made it on a Windows 3.1 machine. <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, yeah, so if right, you're... If the, you're the, the adage about not judging a book by its cover or its title. <laughs> right. Neither one of which, I should say, Carrie probably had anything to do with. I don't think people choose their titles anymore. No, I don't think so. I mean, unless it's an academic press, in which case they don't care about your title all they care about is how prestigious your name is right 
but but you see, yeah, so uh, we can't we we shouldn't blame Carrie for the terrible title on even worse cover, and nor should you if you see that book in a uh, in a store say, oh, I don't think I want to read this. You should read it in all likelihood. <laughs> and before yes. we go on with it, we should say that uh, David Grubbs emailed us last night and he said he he too read the book and really loved it. So I'm sure he wishes he could be here talking with us about it. Uh, but the book gets his endorsement as well. Mm-hmm. But let's start uh, with a little bit of biography. Our listeners may not be familiar with Philip Carey. So, Nathan, can you talk about a bit about who he is, what he teaches, and how you became aware of him? Well, this is where Grubbs is handy because he does biography like nobody else does. Uh, but I will give it a run. Philip Carey uh, did his Ph.D. work in philosophy at Yale University. Uh, after that, he became a professor at Eastern University. Uh, which I believe, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, is also where uh, Daryl Hart and Tony Campolo have also been affiliated. I know Tony so, Campolo has. I don't know if Daryl Hart taught there or not. I thought Daryl Hart did teach there. I, yeah, I don't know. I know he's, uh, you know, he's associated with here. Pennsylvania. Of course, there's, you know, Campolo, there's, there's actually, I think, the Campolo School of Social Justice or something there. So he's, uh, I, Oh, yeah, there is, there is. They, uh-huh. they, they named a school after him while he was still teaching there, so they must, right. really, they must really like Tony Campolo there. Well, and I mean, maybe it's just, you know, my own overactive imagination, but I like to imagine Campolo and Daryl Hart talking politics over lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would like to be a part of that conversation. But at any rate, Philip Carey also has recorded some courses for The Learning Company, which is an online uh, content provider. Uh, I don't have the money to buy online lectures, unfortunately. Uh, The way that I became aware of Philip Carey is he was a guest on Homebrewed Christianity. Uh, He was one of the best guests, in my opinion. And his interview with Trip Fuller uh, really centered on this question of Christian anxiety. And he talked about how uh, the Protestant Reformation really got a lot of its steam, if you will, from a gracious response to an, a- an atmosphere of anxiety. Uh, he talked about how other historic Christian movements have done likewise. And he sort of situates himself, you know, uh, he's not trying to put himself on a level with Martin Luther, I don't think. Uh, but he's certainly trying to say that he wants to be part of the tradition that says, in the face of ideological anxiety, he wants to preach a gospel of grace. And in this book, you know, he refers to himself as a philosophy professor over and over and over again. Uh, but in the same respect, he is, I think, a classical Protestant preacher in that he wants to speak a word of grace. So he's also, I believe, one of the big experts on St. Augustine. Is that right? He has two or three academic books just about Augustine? Yes, he does. And his most uh, popular course at the Learning Company is a lecture series on Augustine. So that's really his specialty uh, and I mean, I you know I really think it comes across in good news for anxious Christians. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I just wanted to point out that he is thus a uh, a real academic writing a popular level book, and I I always like to see that. I, I think uh, uh-huh. I think I think academics have a responsibility to appeal to the popular level from time to time as well. Right. So, so I agree. It, I agree. Yep, so it's I, I'm I'm very glad to see uh, I'm I'm very glad to see this book. Uh, you you happen to be the one who tipped me off to it. I assume that you're the, the one who tipped. David off to it as well. Uh, you read and reviewed it for the blog, and I'll, I'll include a link in that, to that in the show notes. Um, and th- then you sent me and David an email telling us it was worth our money and time, so I picked it up and read it in like one sitting because it, it, was, it was so compelling, and I, I saw it answering so many questions I'd had. Um, 
So obviously I agree with you that it's worth people's money and time, but what about the book strikes you as so necessary and important? Well, in our environment, because all three of us teach in small Christian colleges, I mean, he is speaking to a mindset that governs, uh, if not a statistical majority of our student body, then at least a critical mass. Uh, And really, I mean, he has put his finger on the contours of a certain Protestant ideology that is out there right now. We're all aware of it. People have made amusing blogs about it. If you think about the blogs, you know, stuff Christians like, stuff Christian culture likes, so on and so forth. Uh, These are sort of lampoons of this culture that he's treating. The difference is he actually takes it serious, seriously, philosophically, and he says, all right, you know, these seem to be the underlying assumptions behind this kind of Protestantism. This is why it differs from historical Reformation Protestantism, and here's why historical Reformation Protestantism is ultimately more gracious and ultimately promises more than this ideology can. So, you know, Michael, I'll, I'll leave it to you to follow up on this, but I know in my experience, even in my brief experience at Emmanuel College, but even teaching over at University of Georgia when I've had evangelical students in my classes there who find out that I'm Christian and come to me for counsel, uh, there are certain sets of questions that I hear asked that, like you said, I mean, you know, I made an attempt at answering, uh, but in some respects I was probably, now that I've read, read Carrie's book, I'll, I'll say I was definitely too timid in taking on their underlying assumptions. And we'll talk about some of those assumptions here in a little bit, but what Carrie does is he he doesn't even do the polite thing and say, well, that's a good question, but uh, he actually says, no, that's a really dumb question. Here's the question you should be asking. <laughs> and I mean, you know, he, he does it in a very uh, winning way. Uh, you know, he doesn't insult his reader, I don't think. Instead, right. what he says is, you've been sold a bill of goods. You are being fooled right now. Let me propose to you an alternative to that that's more truthful and see if it tastes better. Yeah, he, he is very clearly writing out of concern for the people who he knows who have been taken in by this, uh-huh. uh, by, by what he calls the new evangelicalism. Uh, he uses that expression throughout the book. What does he mean by that, the new evangelicalism? And where do you see it playing itself out in Christian culture, either at Emmanuel or at Christian culture writ large? Well, the new evangelicalism, uh, I think he identifies rightly as a fusion of consumerism and Protestant Christianity. Uh, And what he means by consumerism is a focus on novelty, on undisciplined desire, uh, on a lack of moral responsibility for choices. So in other words, if you think about what the advertising industry does as an industry, uh, and if you work in the advertising industry, oh listener, I am about to consign you to Dante's Malabolgia, deal with it. Uh, what the advertising industry does is it tells us that whatever desires we happen to be having at the moment, that's what we really need. That's what is good for us. Whatever we want, that is good. So that's one facet of it. Another facet of it is a lack of responsibility. So again, you know, modern society largely rooted in consumerism, uh, tells us that, you know, if we, indulge in these appetites then we are simply being human and you know if if you hear a modern person or postmodern depending on what you want to call 2011 uh say of 
someone else or especially of oneself, well, he's only human or I'm only human, generally what they're saying is not even remotely akin to what, say, Giovanni Pico de Mirandola says when he, when he says human, or even what Boethius says when he, when he says human, but instead it means we are creatures who are unable to resist certain desires, so therefore we're not responsible for them. Uh, and finally, consumerism, as, as Carrie lays it out, uh, is a system that produces anxiety. We're always presented with what could be, uh, and we are encouraged to fulfill what could be by purchasing things. And that results in a couple things. One is it results in consumer debt, which, of course, listen to any political analyst and you'll hear that that is a major problem, especially in America, but also in the United Kingdom. Uh, and the second thing is that when we actually do resist the urge to purchase more than what we can afford, uh, we're stricken with the anxiety that, well, the neighbor's kids have Xboxes, the neighbor's kids got to go to Disney World, the neighbor's kids got cars when they were 16, so on and so forth. Now, when that merges with Protestant Christianity, uh, the phenomena that Carrie lays out are really the section headings of his book, the chapter headings. Uh, the idea that God's voice speaks through your own urges, uh, the fact that, or the contention that, you know, what we need to do is, you know, not be in control of our own actions, but let God have control, let go and let God. Uh, or, and and, you and know, God, God is still that voice in your head, so when you say, let go and let God, you really mean let go and let your un unconscious desires take control. Precisely, and that's the moral responsibility end. But then on the other end, you've got the anxiety of uh, people on television and, you know, sometimes in the pulpit, and certainly at the water cooler, saying, you know, uh, I just feel like I'm living such a victorious life. I feel like God speaks to me, so on and so forth. I feel like my prayers have been answered. Uh, so that, you know, you are perpetually anxious because you are not experiencing this immediate and gratifying voice of God in every moment of your life. So, I mean, those really, I mean, are the contours that Carrie lays out in this book. Uh, and, you know, as far as how it differs from traditional Christianity, you know, I mean, first of all, the idea that Luther and Calvin are so insistent upon uh, is that anxiety is a sign that you're not really understanding the gospel properly. Uh, when Christ declares the sinner righteous, that should be the end of the anxiety. It should be the beginning of gratitude. Uh, so, I mean, there shouldn't be things beyond that to say, okay, well, if I'm not uh, hearing from God in my own inner voice, then I must not be really favored by God. Traditionalist Protestant, especially Christianity, would say, well, no, I mean, when Christ declares you are forgiven, you are beloved, you know, that should put an end to fear, you know, to paraphrase first John. So Michael, I mean, what would you add to that? I mean, as far as, you know, how he outlines new evangelicalism. Oh, you've covered in, in, in some detail. I'm not sure I have that much to add except to, to note again, that it is just a major, major break with traditionalist Christianity. And it, it pretends to be connected to, to, to historical Protestantism, but it is not, it is something new and destructive and mm -hmm. almost completely opposed to it. Right, right. And, you know, one, I, I guess the distinction I would make, or I, 
not a distinction, but what I would add to that, Michael, is that, you know, he's not denying that it is framed in the symbols and the narratives of Christianity as it's been known, but rather that the working assumptions that order those symbols and narratives are very, very different from the theology of Calvin, Luther, and Augustine. Right. Right, and you you wonder how similar it is to, say, the, the corrupted Catholicism of the of the period right before the Reformation. Right. Well, and, I, and what's interesting is in his homebrewed Christianity interview, Kerry actually said that, you know, uh, the anxiety that Luther was experiencing was that uh, he was going to hell, right? And he said that, you know, the modern anxiety usually isn't that stark, uh, but rather it is that, you know, there is some predestined course here on earth, and I shouldn't say predestined because that's actually a historical doctrine, uh, that there is some uh, special and wonderful plan for your life here on earth uh, that you might be missing because you are somehow not spiritual in the right ways. You have to follow the dotted line like in the uh, Family Circus cartoons. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So, in other words, he says that the two are not unconnected. Go ahead. No, no, uh, and uh, I, I was just, I was just going to agree with that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I found two chapters in particular helpful. I mean, all of them were interesting, but mm-hmm. I, I like two in particular. Um, and since I am running the show, those are the two we're going to talk about in depth, at least first. <laughs> uh, the first chapter that struck me was, appropriately enough, the first chapter in a book, Why You Don't Have to Hear God's Voice in Your Heart or How God Really Speaks Today. Uh, I have always been uncomfortable with the idea that God speaks to us via this still small voice. It coincidentally sounds just like me. But Carrie helped me put into words what I don't like about that idea. So what is so bad about listening to the voice of God? You're listening to the voice of God. And what does Carrie say is a better option? Well, what's wrong with it is that our innards, uh, mentally speaking, are a jumble of desire and sin and moments of grace and all of these sorts of things. And Carrie uh, indicates in that opening chapter that, you know, to assume that the voice of God will come first and foremost from your own mental urges is to put entirely too much confidence in your ability to know yourself. Uh, He says that, you know, every modern psychology, we're not just talking about Freud here, uh, says that human motivation is always a mixed bag, uh, that the voices inside of our head uh, are an amalgam of will and memory and all of those groovy Augustinian things. Uh, And therefore, I mean, if we put our trust in that voice inside of our head, we are rolling the dice, basically. We are gambling. Uh, We are saying that, you know, what we, what our mind, which is itself made up of these things, judges to be the voice of God within our mind, which is made up of all these things. Uh, We are basically exponentially increasing the, ch- the chances that it's our own ego, our own desires, our own sinfulness that we're listening to rather than God. Uh, and so, I mean, Carrie goes to the place that a good Protestant goes. He says, you know, where you need to be looking for the will of God is the text of Scripture. Uh, and he says that, you know, what's maddening about teaching evangelical students at Eastern University, uh, and I'll echo this, I mean, this is the same as UGA, it's the same as Emmanuel College, is that students will tell you that, you know, they 
they're seeking the will of God, but then you ask them about the content of the New Testament of the Christian Bible, uh, and they are borderline illiterate on it. Right. And, you know, this is what he says. Is, you know, he says, if you really want to find the will of God, you need to start studying. And I mean, it sounds like a very Sunday school answer, but it's true. Uh, you need to start studying more carefully the actual text of the New Testament. Uh, and that. he says that, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he says that if you are really serious about it, uh, then it's going to take a lifetime to do so. Uh, but, you know, that's not stopping you from starting right now. Uh, and, I mean, that's really, you know, the, the, the hopeful thing about this is that, you know, uh, the scriptures are there. They're available. They are text. And they are subject to someone else's interpretation of them, which leads to sort of the framing point that Carrie makes about all this, which is that, you know, if you are listening for the voice of someone you love, if I'm listening for my wife's advice, I'm not listening for what my own mind says in the quiet moments. I'm listening for what she actually speaks. So, in other words, something coming from outside of me. And he says that... Go ahead, go ahead. So when you talk about God being this still small voice in your head, you're you're it, it's he says it's almost like you're pretending something that doesn't exist does exist. Yeah. I yeah. mean it's actually not like that. It, it's not it's not like that. That is exactly what you're doing. You're pre- I mean not that God doesn't exist, but the God that you hear in your in your head doesn't exist because it's yourself. Right, right. And you know what what he points to is the fact that you know if you want the actual revelation of God, then you go to the text of Scripture. And, you know, why Protestant Christians, you know, who are supposed to be the tradition of the printed Bible, uh, have abandoned that and stopped reading in favor of this sort of uh, solipsistic listening to yourself just baffles him. And, you know, once I read his bafflement, it baffles me too. (laughs) The, The other thing I thought was interesting is he doesn't just say that you can't trust your interior voice. And that's why uh-huh. he he says the problem with calling that God is that you you also it also means you don't trust your own instincts enough. Right, right, and that's largely what the second chapter deals with. But go ahead and oh, is that, run that, that down not, real quick. Yeah, that, yeah. Was that not in the first chapter? Yeah, the, the the second chapter is about intuition. But go ahead and right, right. I guess I guess say a bit of... about about his concept of intuition because I like that formulation too. I just didn't know we were going to talk about it. Well, I. I've, <laughs> You know, like I said, I read this in a single setting, so I must I must have conflated the first two chapters, which which obviously well, that's all right. Which obviously go together, but oh, yeah, obviously, obviously. Yeah, I mean the the the, the point is that if if you think if you think that everything good that you, you, comes in your mind is God speaking directly, it means that you don't think you have anything to say. Whereas instead of listening for the still small voice, we should hear hear what we want to do, hear what we think, and then pray for wisdom about it, which seems like a much more rational and reasonable and, frankly, faithful way to behave. Right, right. So on the one hand, you're denigrating God, and on the other hand, you're denigrating yourself by, by making this mix-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and you know, his concept of intuition is that, you know, what intuition really is, is the result of psychology again. I mean, he keeps going back to uh, psychology and the fact that, you know, our conscious mind uh, is really only processing less than 1% of what our five senses actually take in. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that what we call intuition, and he uses that word, so I, I, I should say 
Intuition is uh, that process by which your God-given ability to take in more than your conscious mind can process gives you signals uh, that are there to help you. So in other words, he says intuition is real uh, and you should listen to it. The problem is that if you call that God, first of all, you are making the scriptures either redundant or entirely useless. And second of all, you are denying that God has actually given you as a human being this good gift called intuition. Uh, so, I mean, really, I mean, it's just a, a fascinating framing of, you know, the relationship between scripture and intuition and rational thought uh, that really leads back to this reality that, yes, it is God who saves us graciously, and yes, we are morally responsible agents. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just love, I just loved that chapter because, like I said, I mean, these, these are things that I kind of intuitively felt but didn't know how to put into words. So when I read the chapter, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, now it all makes total sense. Right. Right. Well, the other chapter that struck me was why you don't have to worry about splitting head from heart or how <laughs> thinking welcomes feeling. Um, our long-time listeners will know that in the great divide between head and heart, I prefer to come down on the head side. <laughs> Carrie, though, says the premises of my choice are wrong. What, what does he propose as the relationship between the intellect and the emotions? Well, first of all, if you have come to our podcast recently, the the exchange that Michael's referring to largely came out in our trio on Christian music. If you go back and look for those episodes, uh, we do, and it turned into a quartet on Christian music because I had to be gone for an episode. But uh, go back and listen to those, and you'll see why we offended uh, people who are sensitive souls uh, and why we don't really feel sorry about that. But uh, in Carrie's chapter, first of all, he goes in a linguistic direction, which pleased me greatly. Uh, he noted simply that the Hebrew lave, uh, which is the word that usually gets translated as heart, uh, is the only word that the Hebrew language has both for the bodily organ uh, behind your rib cage and for the faculty of the human being that deals with decisions and the will uh, and the mind, frankly, there is no separate Hebrew word for mind. You'll notice that uh, in the Shema, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Uh, that heart word there is also the mind word. So Carrie says that, you know, people who say, you know, don't separate your head from your heart are gripped with an anxiety that simply didn't exist for the Old Testament period. Now, the Greek concept of mind does exist separate from kardios, the Greek word for heart. Uh, But again, the idea there, again, if you're familiar with your Plato and your Aristotle, and uh, I'm going to try to resist making Brian McLaren and Tony Jones jokes here, but I might not succeed. Uh, I I think you just failed. No, I think I just did. <laughs> That's two episodes in a row where you've made a gratuitous remark about Brian McLaren and played up. <laughs> well, I there are people out there publishing Christian books who are not very careful readers of Plato and Aristotle. I'll I'll just leave it there. Uh, but even in Plato and Aristotle, if you read them carefully, the idea is always that the desires, the eros, is always something you something that pulls you towards reason and wisdom. 
Uh, and I mean, you know, I can point to Plato's Republic, Plato's Phaedrus, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle's Rhetoric. Uh, I mean, it's just all over in Greek philosophy, the idea that uh, the relationship between the desires and reason is always one where they are parts of an entire human existence. Uh, so, I mean, what Carey says, and what I really like about this chapter is, you know, that uh, what you will very rarely hear, and he says never hear, but I, I'm i never that bold, uh, what you will very rarely hear is someone say, well, you know, uh, don't separate your head from your heart, and what that means is, you know, you are feeling too much, you need to right. be more rational. Right. Uh, almost always in the new evangelicalism, because it's all about anxiety, uh, it's the idea that, you know, you are thinking too much about these feelings, uh, you are examining them too much. And the metaphor that he sets up, and I love this image, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of the book as well, Michael, uh, is he says that your emotions have a nature of their own, very Aristotelian point to make, uh, and the nature of those emotions is that they want to be thought about, they want the attention of your reason. Uh, and so, he says, you know, you will have a much healthier emotional life if you actually do examine your own feelings if you actually do uh, bring them into conversation with your rational thought process, he says that, you know, in, a, in another chapter about uh, motivations, he says that you should not be anxious about your motivations, but you should always reflect on them after the fact and repent of the ones that are selfish. And I think that that, you know, putting of things in the proper sequence is something that Carrie does so well and so clearly that, you know, Again, this is, as I said in my book review, a, a book that is now one of my go-tos for my students if they start to talk like they're in, you know, terminal stages of new evangelicalism. Right. I've, I've been I've, talking too much, Michael. I mean, what would you add about this thinking and feeling chapter? Well, the, he treats feeling as a sort of perception off of which thinking is based, which I, th I think is a much yeah. much healthier... I mean, you think people sometimes talk as though your emotions are what should be driving the show, right? Like, I'm yeah. sure you've heard chapel speakers or whoever say, don't miss heaven by 14 inches, because that's the distance from your brain to your heart, man. I have I mean, actually never heard that, Michael, but I... <laughs> consider yourself lucky. Consider your... It, it seems like that gets that gets said a lot around here. But anyway. Um, okay. Instead, uh, Carrie, Carrie talks about how your heart kind of prepares the way by making you more aware of things around you and then your brain your brain if you want to separate them can sort of sort that out um although you know who's to blame for all this and it's not it's not who anybody would suspect uh my guess would be adam smith but i was gonna say jonathan edwards but i guess adam smith comes before yeah i mean the only reason i say adam smith is because in Theory his well i was going to start with the wealth of nations he oh, talks wow. about self-interest and greed as inherently rational uh he says that you know this idea that there is a rational basis for the good of the city is entirely wrong and that rationality will always lead the baker to make money rather than to help his neighbor uh but then he writes the second book the theory of moral sentiments where he says that we can still have morality but it is entirely based on sentiment rather than on rationality so make your case for Edwards. It might be a stronger case. Well, in Edwards' personal narrative, he talks about, maybe it's divine and supernatural light, because I teach both of them. I teach them together. 
both of them are about this kind of conflict between the intellect and the um, emotions, and, and it's clear that the divine and supernatural light he's talking about, the light of enlightenment, of Christian enlightenment, appeals not to the brain, but to the emotions, and he demands an emotional experience from those who listen. So that's, that's what all those hellfire sermons you get from Edwards are about. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Edwards is a little more balanced than I think a lot of the new evangelicals are, in that he... he yeah, was, I was, was going to qualify that, but you're gonna, going to already, so go ahead. <laughs> he, he at least admits that you can have an emotional experience and not be quote-unquote saved. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think he is largely responsible for introducing this language, which then took off in the Great Awakenings that followed the first one. And he uh-huh. wasn't he wasn't around to kind of say, hey, wait a minute, guys. <laughs> There's more to it than just the emotion part. Right, right. And I, and I would qualify that just a smidge. And Michael, sure. if I'm getting this wrong, you've taught it more recently than I have, so correct me. Uh, but the way that I remember it the last time I taught Divine and Supernatural Light was that the the intellectual question he's responding to is, you know, how is it that these folks like Tom Paine and David Hume are writing these books about the Bible, uh, and yet they are not being saved by the Bible? So, I mean, he seems to be rooting it in a very Calvinist sense of double predestination that these people in spite of the fact that they can apprehend the meaning of Scripture intellectually. Right. You, he, that, he's, he's putting special revelation as this divine and supernatural light that appeals to the emotions. Yeah, and yeah. That, but that's he, what Hume and Payne et al. are missing. Right, right. But he always pairs it with the text of the Scripture, as I remember it. A- abs- absolutely he does. He starts there and he ends Okay, there. okay. I, I just wanted to make sure our listeners got that, because, I mean, he is not the same as what Carrie is debunking in this in that he insists upon scriptural literacy whereas this tradition tends to underplay it at best but i think he brings up he he, he's the one who brings up this you have to have this emotional reaction to it and then um once he's gone there's nobody or very few people to say well you need the intellectual side as well so you look at the difference between the first great awakening and the um Great Awakenings that came after it, and, and I mean, right, you really the 19th see that. century ones, yeah. You, you really uh-huh. see the difference there. So, um, okay. that, that that struck me when I was teaching Edwards last week. I, I was thinking That's about fair enough. and my students are always surprised to hear Edwards talk so much about the emotions because they're you know accustomed to thinking of oh, Puritans as very uh, unemotional people. Huh. Now that's curious. I, I I've thought of the Puritans as many things, but never unemotional. You know, they think of them. <laughs> Think of the Hawthorne Puritans. And see, I always think of them as angry, so I'm... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not accustomed to thinking of Puritans as having pleasant emotions, I guess. Okay, there we go. That I can, that I can agree with. That's fair enough. All right, so you're saying that uh, Edwards uh, laid the egg that was hatched in the big tent. Right. I mean, these are... The, the, <laughs> this part of the new evangelicalism is, I think, the seed of Edwards. That's fair enough. And actually... Uh, listeners, I, I don't know if you can legally get a free copy of this any, anymore, but actually there's an essay by Rodney Clapp that he wrote for Christianity Today years and years ago called uh, Why the Devil Takes Visa. And he actually makes a similar argument, Michael, but he argues that uh, in the opposite direction that it was 19th century revival preachers that invented modern advertising. Oh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it, again... 
to, to bring it back to consumerism, what would advertisers like you like like you to do more than turn off your quote unquote head and turn on your quote unquote heart? Mm-hmm. You know oh yeah, I mean? absolutely, absolutely. You might not buy you might not buy a uh, Prius because because of the fourteen inches between your head and your heart in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. So my crap detector always goes off when people use that metaphor. Right, right, and that's what I always say, and it always just bugs the snot out of my business majors. I always say that that's the inherent schizophrenia in the modern business school because you got the economics professor saying that human beings are entirely rational decision-making machines. And then you've got the advertising professors teaching you how to keep human beings from being rational decision-making machines. Well, and those two groups don't historically get along that well. <laughs> right, but they're both business school professors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, well, and the students <laughs> who study economics and accounting and the other rational business one, they do not like their marketing students. Oh, there you go. So see. It, it put... is, it's roughly akin to the difference between people who study literature and people who study creative writing. Ah, okay, okay. All right. Um, well, those are the two chapters I like the best. Uh, which of the eight chapters, or I guess seven chapters, because we kind of dealt with the second one, um, which of the seven chapters that we haven't talked about yet did you find to be the most earth-shattering? Well, uh, since I have recently started preaching regularly, uh, I really appreciated Chapter 9, why applying it to your life is so boring. Uh, you know, this is something that... Um, Honestly, I, I was anxious about, uh, because when I write sermons and, you know, listeners, I'll, I'll go ahead and repeat what I said last week, the, the podcast feed for Athens Christian Church, you can find it on iTunes or you can find it on the Athens Christian Church website. Uh, but my sermons, the way that I write them very rarely give an imperative to the audience. Uh, and I mean, the reason for that is, you know, I am so busy trying to craft and shape a Bible-shaped imagination and a gospel-shaped imagination that by the time I get to the end of my 20 minutes, and I never let myself go over 20 minutes, I just haven't gotten there. So, I mean, I never have preached a sermon on how to make your marriage better. I never have preached a sermon on how to handle your money. I never have preached a sermon about how to be nice to your neighbor because I am too busy, you know, trying to paint a picture in the congregation's mind of the way that redeemed creation really is in spite of what they see. Reverend Brock uh, would be very, uh, very proud of you, Nathan. Who's that now? He's the, um, Bar- Bardian minister from John Updike's rabbit run who yells, ah, okay, okay, who okay, yells okay. at the Episcopalian for, for preaching all these kind of self-help sermons and getting involved. Oh, in there you lives. go. There you go. See, but at any rate, you know, Carrie's chapter on preaching, uh, you know, why applying it to your life is boring says that, you know, uh, what people don't need in an age of consumerism is more people telling them how to make their life better because all that does is creates anxiety about the fact that it ain't better. Uh, so, I mean, I found that chapter very, very vindicating, even if not earth-shattering. Uh, and again, you know, it, it really helped that, you know, I had sort of... Well, I mean, I had preached, you know, three sermons uh, at Athens Christian Church in November and December... I was heading into a run of four sermons in January, and I realized that I hadn't preached any application, quote-unquote. I would say that I do application, but in a more Aristotelian sense. Uh, But, you know, that just sort of, you know, gave me warrant, I guess, to keep preaching Gilmore sermons rather than Jim Dobson sermons. 
And I, I assume so, you're, I assume you're the same way in your literature classroom, right? You don't you you don't tell them, oh, here's here's how Plato can change your life. Uh, I do. Well, I mean, and again, let me, let me talk about how there's application and then there's application. Mm-hmm. What I do in my sermons and in my lessons on Plato and Aristotle and Dostoevsky, for that matter, is I say that you know if you take what this writer is doing seriously, then you have to answer this question. But I always throw it into the reader's court. I always say, you know, answering this question is always your responsibility. And, you know, you've got to give an account for it now that you're aware of this. Uh, but very, very rarely, if ever, do I say this is how you should do it. Sometimes I say this is how I make my halting attempts to do it, just to give them some kind of example. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, that that idea that, you know, my job is to give them step-by-step instructions and how to order something as complex as human life i I just don't do that you're you're kind of you're you're kind of doing an existentialist application then you say well well there's an application but you better figure it out for yourself um i don't go that far in the existentialist direction what i do say is you know if you take this seriously then this pressing question is before you and you've got to answer it somehow yeah yeah, that, that's that. Like like you said, there's application and there's application. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, you know, but before you go to the chapter that you like the best, Michael, I mean, what did you think about the preaching chapter? I know that you're probably not in the pulpit as often as I am, but uh, I mean, how never... did that strike you in your own experience of listening to sermons? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm I prefer your sort of, your your sort of sermon. I always feel like the application sermon talks down to the audience. Uh huh. It's 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 patronizing, um, and and plus they're kind of the the application sermon is always already ephemeral. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh huh. But but a sermon where you explain what it meant and you you ask more eternal questions about it. Um, well, that 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 sermon is something that your listeners can theoretically carry with them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, just to give the the most extreme example I can remember, and I won't say which preacher this was, uh, but he you can actually, tell me after we get off the air. <laughs> uh, he actually gave a sermon about how to be better grandparents. Very nice, F- very helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, considering you know, I heard this sermon when I was twenty five years old. Uh, Mary and I hadn't even started trying to have kids yet, much less even started about being <laughs> started thinking about being grandparents. I I, uh, I heard one once on Mother's Day about how a woman's role is in the home. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And see, this folks, this is why I preach the lectionary because it doesn't acknowledge the existence of Mother's Day. <laughs> Talk about a consumerism <laughs> holiday, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, when May comes, will I be preaching a Mother's Day sermon at Athens Christian? Yeah, I probably will. So I'm. <laughs> I'm I, it's called so, a just hypocrisy. You know, to yeah, to to appropriate and misquote a poem of myself, ever reproaching myself for who more foolish than I and who more faithless. You just you just don't want to be run out of that church by a gang of angry middle aged women. This is true. Also, your wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, Carrie is rather clear that he wrote 
this book after noticing the problems of the new evangelicalism in his own students at Eastern University. I am sure you've mm-hmm. noticed the same problems in your students at Emmanuel. I know oh, I see it. them. Preach I, it. <laughs> I know I know I see them in Crown students. But how do we make a difference? How do we as professors and people with limited access to spiritual development uh, and things like that, how, how do we help implement Carrie's solutions to these problems? What can we do? Well, we've got a, an advantage, Michael, in that we teach literature. I mean, if if there is a, a mathematics professor out there, it's going to be much more difficult, frankly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, integrals and personal responsibility, I don't know how those connect. There might be math professors out there who can do it. But, you know, I mean, for instance, you know, just this last semester when I was teaching the Brothers Karamazov, uh, you know, I mean, that was an ideal opportunity to talk about, you know, the spirituality of various characters in that book. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the the narrator, who is a hopeless and, you know, gossipy soul, uh, you know, gives us this picture of these Russian women who, you know, come to uh, the the Elder Zosima. I never. I, I don't like to pronounce the Russian word for it, even in a classroom, much less when I got a microphone in front of me, because I'll be popping all over the place. But uh, when she comes to the when they come to the Elder Zosima, you know, they think that they have been healed of these demon possessions and such. And the narrator, who, like I said, I mean, you know, is not the omniscient voice of the 18th century novel by any means, uh, says that you know, odds are. There might be some unclean spirits in these women, but probably more of them are just so run down by the cares of the peasant life of a Russian woman uh, that when someone actually treats them with love and respect, it lifts a burden off of them psychologically. Uh, Now, the reason that I bring that up is that, you know, by analogy, I could tell these students, you know, that you know, you might think that something is really weighing on your life, and you're right. The question is not whether or not there is something there, but how we name it. Right. And I said, you know, I would be the very last person to deny that there are unclean spirits wandering the world. Uh, I'm far too much of a skeptic to be sure that I know that they're not. <laughs> More of gravy uh, than of grave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm reminded of David Hume's famous encounter with the Paris atheists. Uh, he wrote about it afterwards. He says, wow, those people are very sure of themselves. I'm not nearly that confident. <laughs> uh, but which is why I love David Hume, by the way. He, he's probably after Friedrich Nietzsche, my favorite atheist writer. Uh, but, you know, because we taught that scene, I could actually have that conversation with my students that's one face of it. The other face of it is, and this is something that a professor of mathematics could do just as well as a professor of literature is, uh, that because we are authority figures, because we care about our students, because we are in that position structurally where students trust us, they will come to us for counsel. And I know that in my two and a half brief years at Emmanuel College, I have, even before I read Carrie, counseled students who came to me with this mentality that, you know, I need to seek the will of God. Uh, and I mean, even before I read Carrie, I, I had enough theological background to say, all right, let me tell you what the will of God is. The will of God is that wherever you land and whatever you do for a living and whoever you end up marrying, 
Uh, you have sex only with that person. You live faithfully to God wherever you are and that you work for your boss as if you're working for God. I said, that's God's will for you. I just told you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, now what you need to ask is what is the best decision based on what you actually know about yourself? And then you make the decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, probably Michael, again, this is, you know, uh, the years of hanging out with you. It's, it's, it's Christian existentialism rubbing off on me. You know, I'm getting Bonhoeffer all up in their business. Uh, but I mean, you know, the, the fact that students will come to their teachers for counsel, for wisdom, means that we have that opportunity actually to teach wisdom. And I think that that is the best way we can do it. One thing that I would probably avoid is simply, you know, assigning this book for a class. Oh, yeah. Well, what class would uh, I be able to assign it for anyway? Well, I actually teach the Capstone Theology Seminar. And Kevin DeYoung actually wow. wrote a book. Well, I mean, I, it's taught by people from all different departments. That's what's great about that class. I mean, right now we've got a historian, a music music professor, uh, a librarian, and myself teaching the capstone course. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I mean, the, the focus of the class is, you know, bringing theology into the professional world. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense that we, that and it's got to be taught as overload. That's the real reason why people from different departments do. But, uh, you know, and, oh, I, I'm sorry, and a ministry professor. There's five of us. But at any rate, the point here is that, you know, in that class, one of the books that we considered adopting this year was uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, uh, which is very similar to Carrie's book. But, I mean, I really balked at that idea, first of all, because Kevin DeYoung, surprise, surprise, writes a hyper-Calvinist version of Philip Carey's argument, uh, which wouldn't really fly at a Pentecostal Southern Baptist college. Sure. Uh, but second of all, because I think that that is a conversation that's best had when the student initiates it. Yeah, it makes so, sense. They have to be looking for it before they can, before they're going to be willing to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what, what would you add to that, Michael? Because I, you know, that's how I've tended to handle these questions. How have you gone about it yourself? Well, I, I haven't yet. Um, I, oh, okay. You can kind of introduce it into, like, like you said, into the classroom. When I talked about Jonathan Edwards, when I, when I taught divine and supernatural light, I tried to show that he is not really dividing head and heart as much as we do in the modern world and things like that. Uh huh. Um, uh -huh. But I ask you because I legitimately did not know. <laughs> okay, fair so, enough. Fair enough. So, you so can, my 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 big picture answer is one student at a time. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that attempts to do this on a mass scale are going to meet with limited success at best. And really, I fear, might actually inoculate our students against a classical Protestant theology. They might say, okay, you know, that liberal professor says that God doesn't speak to my heart, so therefore I'm going to listen all the harder. Yeah. And that, that, would, be, uh, that would be unfortunate. Yeah. Well, my last question is a little different than our last questions usually are. My question is, do you have anything to add to this book? In other words, do you do you see any problems endemic to the new evangelicalism that Carrie doesn't cover? Yeah, and you know, this question, you know, made me think harder than the other seven did, so that's good. I I would say that one thing that is peculiar to spirit churches, which is a world that I have sort of entered I knew here in the last three years at Emmanuel College, but I think that it has analogs in more rationalist traditions like my own Stone Campbell tradition. 
uh, is the problem of assigning one's own positions in a debate to the agency of God. And this is something that in my own tradition almost always begins with the phrase, well, my Bible says that. <laughs> uh, but, but in the spirit churches, I mean, it takes on a shape that uh, I think that Kerry really puts his finger on. Uh, people will say, you know, I think that God gave me a word that Yep, it's a, it's a trump card. You can't argue against yeah. it. Yeah, and, and, and I want to say that, you know, I don't deny that there are moments where God gives the gift of superhuman discernment, uh, supernatural discernment beyond human nature. Uh, you know, I've talked with ministry professors, I mean, who have been very gracious to me because I really am entering into this world as an utter novice and have sort of explained to me the whole concept of the word of knowledge and such. And it makes a certain degree of sense theologically these ministry professors are the first ones who, who are, these ministry professors, pardon me, are the first ones to say, this gets abused egregiously. Uh, but at any rate, you know, the move that, you know, I see in the new evangelicalism in the spirit church version is, uh, you know, God gave me this word and then, you know, sets forth what really should be subject to deliberation, theological deliberation. But, but we can't uh, deliberate really, because it's a it's a word from from the Lord and, and you know who right we, right yeah yeah it is a direct you know communication from the Holy Spirit and therefore uh, if you disagree with it you are taking a stand against God now like I said you know this is not unique to the spirit church world I mean what people will do is they will do a shoot from the hip slipshod uh, I won't even call it exegesis I'll say impressionistic reading of a Bible verse. And they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. Uh, and, you know, that's the version that takes place in more biblicist traditions like my own Stone Campbell tradition. And that is now, an equally if, if aggravating I, tendency. Yeah, now, if I were to propose a Carey-style rebuttal to that, you know, I would say that the scriptures, first of all, historically, were always read out loud in the assembly. Uh, they were never something that were, you know confined to one individual person's personal interpretation. They were always there out in the open for everyone to discern together. And likewise with the Spirit, right? I mean, Paul says that, you know, if a word is going to be edifying, then it must be spoken in a way that people can comprehend it. Uh, and that, you know, if we can go from Paul on over to First John, uh, there's that idea that spirits are always to be tested uh, so, you know, it, and I realize, Michael, you didn't ask me to do a carry rebuttal, uh, but I'm attempting one anyway. No, no I would problem. say that, you know, the practice, the disciplined practice of theological deliberation, uh, which is part of the historic Christian tradition, you know, all the way back to the New Testament, uh, would be the antidote to that tendency within the new evangelicalism and his i mean carrie's antidotes are always something that reaches back into the historic protestant tradition absolutely absolutely so i, I tried to i tried to play carrie there <laughs> well he uh he touched on mine a little bit in the head and the heart chapter but i wish he would have gone more into uh worship services and what 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 we are expected by the new evangelicals to feel and do during the worship services. I would have, uh -huh. uh, I would have appreciated it if he had said, you know, you don't have, you don't have to feel anything when singing praise songs or things, but I mean, that, that sort of thing probably doesn't surprise anybody who, who has heard me <laughs> talk about anything before. Right. Right. 
the whole feelings debate back in the Christian music series. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, he, he kind of, you, you can extrapolate from what he does say about emotions and intellect, but I wish he would have had a chapter that addressed that directly. Right, right. And I mean, to go back to, I mean, even Plato and Aristotle, but especially Augustine, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, do you want to say more about that? I, I just I jumped in there. And, okay, I mean, just to go back to that classical tradition as it's appropriated by Augustine, you know, I mean, one of the things that Augustine himself would probably be wary of uh, is the denial of the possibility that the affections could be shaped by Christian discipline. Uh, in other words, you know, he would say that salvation is always a gratuitous act on the part of God, uh, that it's nothing that we earn, but that God, that part of that picture of salvation is an ongoing transformation or sanctification, to use the modern Protestant vocabulary, uh, not only of the ethical life, but also of the affective life. Hmm. So in other words, you know, if you assume that the emotions that you experience at a U2 concert uh, are the ones that are themselves inherently the best sort of emotions that are possible to experience, then you close yourself off to the possibility that God might lead your emotions into something higher, something more refined, something, uh, frankly, more spiritual, even though I sometimes balk at that word. Uh, but if it is God actually leading one into that spirituality, uh, then who am I to argue? <laughs> Well, that sounds reasonable to me, Nathan. Uh, do you have anything to add, or, or are we done? Well, I mean, one thing I would say is, you know, those of you out there who are teachers by trade or who work with the young, really, or for that matter, who are in, you know, Bible studies more generally that are, you know, led by lay leaders of various sorts, uh, this is a great book. It's one that I can definitely recommend, not just for teachers, kind of like, you know, Kreider's Office of Assertion. That's really for English teachers uh, or teachers in general. But this is one... I think really that speaks to our moment in church history uh, in a way that's very accessible, that's very clear, and that is very timely. So uh, I, I would definitely give it an unreserved recommendation. Or not unreserved. Did I say unreserved or undeserved? Unreserved. Okay, good. I, I thought I'd said undeserved, so Freud was only existing in my head, not in my mouth. And I, and uh, I, would, I would too, and I assume Grubbs would as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I... I only pulled this off of my bookshelf in my office so I could bring it home to record this podcast. Uh, it's going back in the place where I can quickly pull it off the shelf and hand it to a student if I need to, because this is good medicine for a sickness that ails us in the early 21st century. Absolutely. Well, we will be back next week, I think, and I think David Grubbs will be homing the episode. Right, right. So, you know, David, uh, what are we talking about next week? <sighs> I, I haven't the faintest idea. I'm well, sorry, I, I just had to set. I had to set that quote up. <laughs> I, I, I guess. I guess we'll all find out next week. <laughs> we may be talking about J term. There you go. Or yearbook. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist uh, at gmail.com or go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, for Nathan Gilmore in the absent but soon to return, David Grubbs. This is Michael Farmer saying, "Let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger." Driving stinks I can't see Settle down Now labels are drag Now labels are last wrong Now it's her In my